In the infamous opening scene of the newsroom, Aaron Sorkin, through his surrogate Will McAvoy, pines for the America that used to be. He extols a myriad of technological and economic achievements alongside a less fearful and more humble culture before giving his enrapt audience the reason America was able to span so long in the sunshine. We were able to be all these things and do all these things because we were informed by great men, men who were revered. In the final episode of the show, McAvoy again offers some words before a crowd, this time at a wake. In offering remembrances for his longtime friend and colleague, the crescendo of this speech once again, though more muted, hits the same note. You were a man, Charlie. A great big man. Will McAvoy, or rather Aaron Sorkin, is not the only one who places an important and perhaps essential link between the ability to orate, teach, and lead with a particular view of being a man. The appeal to one's masculinity, or a particular performance of masculinity, as a sign of one's authority as rhetorician, teacher, and leader, stretches back, perhaps uninterruptedly, through Western history way back to before we started putting AD at the end of our years. However, what today's guest argues is that there was a rather important figure in that history who balks this trend. Indeed, who intentionally and repeatedly subverts it. The Apostle Paul, my guest goes to great detail to argue, deliberately misperforms the character of ideal masculinity, deliberately fails at being a man. And what's more, St. Paul calls his fellow Christians into such a failure, into such a misperformance as an act of faithfulness to Christ and unity within the Christian community. Welcome to Love, Rinse, Repeat, a podcast recorded on Darking Young Land by me, Liam Miller, he, him, his, a minister in the Uniting Church in Australia. My guest today is Brian J. Robinson, author of Being Subordinate Men, Paul's Rhetoric of Gender and Power in 1 Corinthians, out with Lexington Books, Fortress Academic. Beyond this insightful and, and increasingly timely book, Brian teaches classes on religious studies and Hellenistic, Jewish, and early Christianity literature at Azusa Pacific University and California Lutheran University. Please, wherever you are, put your hands together because like Tinkerbell, those applause keeps us alive and help me welcome Brian to love, rinse, repeat. Well, Brian Robinson, welcome to Love, Rinse, Repeat. Thank you. It's good to be here. It's very exciting to have you. We're, we're talking today about your book, Being Subordinate Men, Paul's Rhetoric of Gender and Power in 1 Corinthians, out with Lexington Books, Fortress Academic. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe just just as we wade in, just talk to us a little about, you know, the broad, uh, you know, uh, the broad project uh, and kind of maybe how it came about and... Uh, and I guess maybe what you were hoping would, would come of it. Yeah, well, the project started in my exploration of a question. And that, that question was first posed by Beverly Gaventa, someone who I know you've had on the show. And I had the uh, privilege of taking a class with her at, while she was still at Princeton Seminary. And it was a question she posed in her book, Our Mother St. Paul. And it's basically, well, what do we do with all this maternal imagery that Paul uses in his letters? Um, and, you know, the maternal imagery is not necessarily surprising to, to, to find in, the, in biblical text or, or ancient texts more broadly because it's there. But it, is, it did seem weird to find so much of it 
and especially the way that it was used in Paul because of the way that Paul is oftentimes understood as critical of women and tamping down women's authority and and oftentimes used to support patriarchal understandings of the of the Christian tradition. And she basically said, hey, there's some weird stuff here. Paul talks about himself in feminine imagery. What do we do with that? And um, she did a great job pointing out that it was there. And she did a great job pointing out that it wasn't didn't really fit with standard portrayals of Paul. Um, but also in the book and in her subsequent work, she also doesn't really offer a solution as to, well, what do we do with this imagery? So I was, I'd finished my comprehensive exams and I was sitting down with Daniel Kirk to talk about different options for a dissertation. And I was like, well, I have these two ideas. One is sort of the standard, I'm gonna look at these four chapters in Romans and there are these two things going on. And he's like, that sounds fine. I think we can do that. And I was like, but I have this really weird other thing that I wanna do. <laughs> and I, I wanna do it for a couple of reasons. One is it's, it's sexier. And if I'm gonna spend three years researching a topic, you know, the more interesting it is, the better. And I knew that mm. looking at Paul's masculinity and ancient discussions of masculinity and gender, there was going to be lots of crazy texts that I would get to read. And I mean, that's appealing at one level. Um, but also it was, uh, I think that was about 2014, 2015. And that was at the time when, you know, things were getting started here in the U.S., getting ready for the 2016 elections and, and the craziness was starting to amp up. And um, the idea that Hillary Clinton was going to be the Democratic nominee had just sort of caused gendered conversations to reach a fever pitch. And seeing the seeing uh, American Christianity, but especially American evangelicalism, just losing its mind with the idea of seeing a woman in, in, in that position, that position of power. And so I thought for several reasons, you know, it'd be more interesting to look at. It, it seemed timely in terms of what we were seeing going on with gender and discussions of power in, in my context here in the United States. And so I thought, why not? Let's try it. And, you know, it, it ended up coming to some answers as I seek to, to go through Beverly's question and do research and, and come up with some pretty interesting ideas along the way. Yeah, and we'll definitely get into a bunch of that because it is, you know, one of the great things, you know, you get a book sometimes, you're like, wow, if, if Brian's right, then so much <laughs> is, is now wrong or at least needs to be rethought in the terms of what Christians are, or, you know, and certain groups of Christians seem so determined to, to uphold and, and, and promulgate. So I think that's, yeah. Sorry about the noise. My, my son was wandering out for a second. But I do appreciate your point, that question of if Brian is right, <laughs> And I am willing to, I, I mean, I am willing to entertain the fact that I'm not, but I, I do think that the book um, for First Corinthians, along with other work that scholars are doing in, in other biblical texts, shows us that the standard portrayal of Paul and the standard portrayal of the, the early followers of Jesus as being patriarchal and misogynistic really doesn't fit the text that we have for the first two centuries. It, it does sort of change after that, but especially in those early moments, uh, the possibility of a, of a true egalitarian society or community was there. And I think one of the things that's so interesting right now is um, if you look at where scholarship is in terms of social scientific analysis and contextual analysis of these texts, 
um, really understanding that, that these, these letters, the Gospels, that all of this material is deeply embedded in the context of the first century. And as you begin to situate it within it, you realize there's some weird stuff going on. And mm -hmm. it, it really doesn't lend itself to the type of easy appropriation that we've seen used to support patriarchal or top-down understandings of the Christian tradition. Mm. Well, thank you for that. So yeah, maybe we'll start to get into a bit of that because, you know, chiefly in the book is the argument that, you know, Paul is using, you know, rhetorical devices to draw attention to himself and, right. and, and saying, hey, imitate me, which is, that's not uncommon. But what he is drawing attention to is the fact that he is failing the standards of masculinity as set forth in that culture. He, exactly. he, he is a, a failed man or a subordinate man um, and that that indeed is what is to be imitated. So perhaps before we get to why Paul is kind of, you know, the intent of that, maybe let's just kind of talk a bit about what, about this kind of both this rhetoric device to kind of that, that, that you know, Paul's... Um, peers or, or, or contemporaries are saying, hey, look at me and my great masculinity um, and that's why you need to listen to me. And, and Paul going, actually, I'm a totally different thing, but you still need to listen to me. <laughs> yeah, well, and that's an interesting intersection. And that was, a, that was a key sort of problem to work through is that, that at the same time, Paul is trying to balance his role as an authority figure in this community, right? And he, and he has that role for several reasons. Uh, one is that he helped found the community or was at least an important voice within it. Uh, the other is that he's a powerful voice, at least within certain sections of the early uh, early followers of Jesus, the early movement. But like you said, he's consistently using him, using his identity and pointing to himself in ways that are not just unusual for how someone in authority would point to themselves and try to act, but they're actually the opposite of what people would try to do. And, and it's, it's as you begin to understand that intersection between one's self-portrayal and their, uh, their social persona or their ability to act with power in the public sphere, that you see just how crazy and just how stupid Paul's self-description is or the way that men were typically told to present themselves and behave in the ancient world, and that he's doing essentially everything wrong. You know, when you mentioned the Paul pointing to himself as an image or, or a paradigm for the first for the uh, for the Corinthian community to imitate, and it even goes it even goes further than that because Paul says that in his in what he is doing, he is imitating Christ, and right so within. First Corinthians, especially the image of not just Jesus, but of the crucified Jesus um, is an important one because that serves as the model that Paul is imitating and that the model of Jesus as a crucified body has all kinds of feminine and conquered and penetrated imagery wrapped up in it. And that Paul then embodies that himself. And he's asking the Corinthians to likewise embody that same sort of failed failed and penetrated and weak body. Mm. Thank you for that. And I think, yeah, because you, you kind of set up that, you know, there's kind of a three different ways of, of masculinity at play in, in some of the rhetor rhetorical world. There's there's like, to use like, you know, a more contemporary, term, like that alpha male kind of, I, I am performing masculinity in the absolute best way. I'm rational and wise and self-controlled. Mm -hmm. And then, and there's probably that more Greco-Roman kind of, and then there's the, the Jewish writers that you kind of talk about who 
um, kind of almost strike a balance where, yes, it's still enough um, of the kind of the masculinity as it's meant to be performed, but not so much as to bring the community into threat uh, mm-hmm. or to make it like look like they're staking a claim for, for power in the society. And then Paul is, you know, this, this very other thing. And, 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 and part of what it made me think is, you know, we sometimes think of, well, people only really just started discussing gender and the performance of gender, what, like in, in like 1968, um, yeah. after some people walked in the streets, you know, it was like, and before that, everyone just knew what a man was and a woman was and, and, and mm-hmm. let it be. Uh, but, you know, people are very concerned, you know, in Paul's day with, with what this looks like and should look like and the various levels that it can. And, and you know, it's not a, uh, a new discussion. Oh right, and when you think about the use of the use of dress, or the use of performance, or the misperformance of these things, or the manipulation of these systems to either try to gain a certain status or to intentionally sort of buck the system, uh, you're right. There's a tendency to think, oh well, this is a sort of modern, this is a, a modern understanding as we have become enlightened. But as you sort of do a follow like the work of Foucault and Halperin and, and Richland and, and others, you sort of move backwards through time and you realize, no, this has always been how people have treated their bodies and have treated legal systems and have treated dress and, and all of these types of behaviors, um, even if it was just at an intuitive level. They weren't thinking, oh, I'm doing this in order to book the system. They're thinking, oh, this is just what I do in order to fit this particular place in society. Mm. Yeah. I think then, like, you, you kind of talk about in the book that, you know, Paul doesn't have this kind of systematic theology abstracted from, from everything right. that's going on around him. He is engaged very deliberately in the interpretation and reinterpretation of symbols in the light of Christ. Right. Um, right. Can we talk just a bit about that? Yeah. And so that's one where, so going back to your mention of sort of like the three different ways to be a man, and there's the alpha male or sort of the, the academic language there is hegemonic, and then there is complicit, which is, uh, for people who don't who who don't or can't embody the full discourse of being an alpha male, but you might think of them as sort of like the the one that's tagging along the side, right? They're not the bully, they're not the one that can lead the group, but they're a part of the group, and they they can do enough to be included, and their inclusion allows them to benefit from the system that's created by the alpha male's dominance of other people, right? So. So these are the people who um, they're they're still benefiting from the system. And really, what's interesting is that when you look at um, sociologists who who analyze this type of behavior, there are far more people in this group and in the final group than are actual alpha males. And if these groups just organize themselves better, we could have a better system. But it's people playing along with the story that they've received that then allows the alpha male to continue to dominate. So you have the alpha male, then you have this sort of middle group, those who are benefiting from the system, even though they're not able to fully embody all of it. And then you have the third group, which is those who have failed the system. And those are the people who are outsiders. Those are the ones who are othered. They're the ones who are seen as a threat. Their bodies, their sexuality, they're always seen as sort of undermining the stability of the community. And what's so interesting is that when you look across time, you see that there's always some group that's being othered in that way. It just depends on what those on the inside of the community are afraid of that determines which group is being othered. And what's so interesting, and this is coming back to your point about the, the, the cruciformity of Christ or the cruciform nature of Paul's thinking or his cruciform vision, is that 
when Paul aligns himself with this crucified body and understands that this crucified body is the quintessential example of what it means to be human and the quintessential example of what it means to relate to other people and to relate to power, he takes all of his understandings of the world, all of those contextual embodied ideas of what it means to to live and what it means to dress and what it means to use the legal system and, and walk through the marketplace, all of this, he takes it all and he doesn't abandon it, but he filters it through this new lens. And he's like, okay, well, as a person who has to go into these places and live this life in this particular context, how can I live a life that is modeled after this crucified body? And that's where you see Paul taking these discourses of masculinity and saying, okay, people are going to, and whether or not he actually thought about this um, in in the way that I'm describing or not, but he takes these discourses of masculinity. It's like people are going to expect him as a leader to speak publicly. So he's going to emphasize the fact that he doesn't speak well. And people are going to say, well, he's a leader of the community. So we're going to look at him as a father figure. And so he says, well, I am a father figure, but I'm an awful shameful father figure. And people are going to expect him to demonstrate that mastery over bodies. And one of the main ways that men in the first century demonstrated that mastery was by having sex with people who were in lower positions to them. And Paul's going to say, well, I'm not going to have sex with anybody. I'm going to be celibate. And so in all of these ways, you see that at some level, there is, a, there is a choice being made to live a particular type of life that, that declares something about power and about the body for Paul's audience and for people that would have observed Paul in the first century. And I think when you think about sort of the implications for Christian thinking or the implications of the crucifixion and sort of the new possibilities that it introduces... The hope that all of that brings to the current situation and saying there's a better way to be a person and there is a more healthy way to use power and there is a more equal way of arranging bodies, even if we need to account for the fact, and especially when we can account for the fact that not all bodies are the same, and that's obviously true, but that means that we can come up with different ways of behaving so that equality is still achieved as all of the differences in those bodies are accounted for. I think that's so so helpful. And as you say, yes, it is something that then is so immediately translated into our contemporary context because, you know, you kind of write about, you know, um, talk about writing about, you know, throughout that lead into 2016 and and, and the Trump-Hillary discourse and, and what's happening in American Christianity there. But I even think now, like, got 2020 and, like, like Biden is challenging Trump to like a push-up contest kind of thing, you know, or like his ads are about how he can how he can run upstairs, and it's like, well, that's just it's just buying into the same game that this is indeed yes. Um, actually, Trump was right. I'm just better at it, you know. Like it's like we're not rather than actually going no no upturn and rethink uh, this whole thing, and like you know we see it so much with you know even like so many of the insults that have you know emerged over the last little while of like beta and simp. And like cuck and things like that that that, that, that um, you know seem to get so much more play in this century than they did in the you know last couple of decades of of, of the twentieth. It's it's yeah, and you know, it's interesting because you know you mentioned how like since like the late sixties there seems to be a growing awareness of how fragile these categories are, right? And so <laughs> as people begin to understand, well, my identity is not just something that I'm given and not just something that I have like essentially. 
but it's something that's constructed, uh, that's unsettling. And that, that can be deeply, I mean, it's, it's really powerful when, it, when you think about the ways that allows people to take control and to like undermine unhealthy discourses and stuff like that. That's great. But when you think about just how constructed reality is and how constructed your place within reality is, that, that freaks you out. And I think we're seeing, we're seeing that type of freak out happening as people are having to wrestle with the fact that how I thought about myself and how these sort of stable categories that I thought were just given, they're, they're really not. And other people are asking me to renegotiate those categories in ways that I might not want to do. And it, it's actually, it, there's an interesting parallel um, when you look at what was happening in the, uh, the, the transition from the Roman Republic to the, the, the Principate, to the Empire. Because it went, from a, it went from a system where there was sort of this myth that anybody could rise up and, and eventually have enough money to participate in the Senate. And so everybody, there was a sort of, much like today in some places, this idea of the meritocracy where it's open to anybody and those who achieve those positions or those who are truly man enough to demonstrate you know, their, their ability to hold that political position of power. But when you have an emperor who is now in charge and who becomes the father figure for everybody else, all of those other men who previously could have ascended to the high position of masculinity, they're now by default under the authority of someone else. And that creates an instability in their own masculine identity. And so um, scholars, both within biblical studies, but also within it, with, with classical literature more broadly, talk about this crisis of masculinity that happens in the first and second century as high status men who used to be able to demonstrate their power by ascending up the political ladder now don't have that available in the same ways and they don't know what to do. And they freaked out in really unhealthy ways too. And I don't know whether it's reassuring to know that this is sort of a human thing that happens from time to time or whether it's just depressing that we continue to fall into the, the mm. same rhythms. A little bit of both, maybe. Right, which then, that's probably a good lead-in then to, to be part of the book is, you know, to why is Paul making this, this plea? And as you say, it's, it's essentially a plea for unity. Paul wants right. unity in, in the Corinthian community. And what he is seeing is that the, the disunity is kind of based on higher status members kind of trying to, you know, be more enticed to imitate that hegemonic view of masculinity than, than the subordinate view. And what Paul says is, um, and again, this is counter to what we see often, don't try to lift the low status up here, <laughs> you know, in a sense of don't go bootstrap theology and, and get everyone and, and buy into that, just try to get everyone on board. It's seek unity by failing at masculinity and, and making accommodations for those who are lower status um, right. and, and kind of joining there. And I think... That's really interesting. Then, if you say as as this is going on all around of this crisis of masculinity, it's like, well, don't respond to the crisis by trying to grab higher and higher. Respond by subverting and going down. In a similar way, in our world now, it's like you know, don't try to cling to the halls of power or or reassert that actually I I am super macho. It's it's rethink the whole thing. Right. Don't have a push up contest. Go do something else that's actually going to help help people. There's um uh, Father Father Greg, he does uh, he has a uh, here in Los Angeles where I'm where I'm based. He has an organization called Homeboy and Homegirl Bakery and and um, and job training. And he is just he's just brilliant. But he has a saying that I come back to 
which is go and stand on the margins until there are no margins, right? Mm-hmm. Don't, don't try to just go towards the center of power and wield what we know are biased and unfair um, levers of power in the hopes of trying to make the world better. Because oftentimes, and again, we've seen this time and time again, corrupt systems oftentimes corrupt good people. He's saying, well, just go stand with those on the margins. And if enough of us do that, there will be no margins. That will just be where everybody is. And that won't be a bad place anymore. And again, going back to what we see um, modeled in the Gospels and what we see in how the, the epistles then reflect back on the life of Jesus is, you know, Jesus was oftentimes tempted and prodded both by the devil and his disciples and seemingly everyone else to go to the center of power to take the take the the uh, mechanisms of power and conform the world that way, right? And and repeatedly through the Gospels, he says, "No, that's that's not how the kingdom of God is formed. That's not how the kingdom of God will come about. The kingdom of God doesn't come about through the traditional uses of power as you've seen them, right? It comes about through undermining those. And also the ultimate way to undermine power is to to not play the game. And and that's I think ironically one of the things that is 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 most sort of counterintuitive to displays of power as we oftentimes see them is the most effective way to disarm a bully is to just ignore them right but when you try to when you when you try to play their game back that just feeds into their power the most powerful thing is to say this doesn't actually matter i'm going to go do this other thing over here and then they're left by themselves mm-hmm. and then it's their choice whether or not they want to continue behaving like that or not and and that's where I, I think when you look at sort of the growth of the, the, the early Christian movement, the followers of Jesus, right? It was happening amongst those at the bottom of society. And it was, it was growing fastest among those who couldn't participate in these sort of standard mechanisms of upward mobility that Rome offered to some people. And that's because the, the early followers of Jesus weren't trying to play that game, right? They were going to the margins and they were finding community there. And and the real crazy thing is they were finding ways of allowing those other people, those people who were complicit and those people who were hegemonic and saying, it's really sad that you have all that power and authority in the world. That's dangerous stuff. But don't worry. There's ways that you can get out of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 100%. Um, I think there's, there's so many implications, particularly from, like, you know, you often see this kind of, yeah, um, well, I know I have power. I don't want to, or wealth, or what have you. I'm not necessarily going to get rid of that. I'll use it for the good of, of those out there while kind of still holding my place here. And and, and, and that this certainly subverts that. Um, yeah. I think another piece that's really helpful with with the book's focus on like how this is this is a a, a plea for unity, a, a move for unity, is that so often the discussions around gender and sexuality. Um, and diversity in that in that regard um, are framed in terms of like of division or of schism. Like that's that's the way those conversations are often uh, framed in the church, introducing the church. And here, Paul is using a subordinate, um, subversive, um, uh, you know, gender performance and plea for others to, to engage in this as a as a move for unity, not for the the other. Which I think is just a really interesting um, that that struck me as I was reading through. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree. And, and that's one of the that was one of the surprises, sort of as I was researching and going through the process of looking at how these different pieces might fit together was um, 
was seeing that Paul sort of chose this counterintuitive idea. Like you said, he sort of chose this scandalous thing as the uh, as the the mechanism to bring people together. And you know, on the one hand, it's it's interesting because it's like he doesn't have to convince the people who are already subordinate to be subordinate because that's that's yeah. The, the thing he has to do is he has to convince, like we talked about, those people that have the ability to participate at least at some level in those uh, in those in those areas of power. Those they can they can do some of the things. He has to convince them that that is not how they can participate in this community, right? And I think that comes mm-hmm. back to that's why you know if if you think that the New Testament is just giving you blank theology, then you assume that, you know, each letter, each gospel is going to talk about Jesus in the same way, and it's going to use the same type of language. And, and when you really get into it, you realize that's that's not true at all. And Paul oftentimes doesn't talk about the crucifixion or the crucified body of Jesus in the way that we would expect, but he really does in 1 Corinthians, right? And I think he, he holds that image, that crucified body, um, holds it up so clearly because that really is that really is his sort of like trump card, and I use that I use that expression, and I hate myself for using it these days. But like that that's sort of his ultimate power move, because he's like mm. this this is this is what happened to the body of Jesus, and the resurrection didn't change that, right? The resurrected body is still the crucified body. It is mm. still a body that has felt the mechanisms of power, that has felt the penetration of Rome. And it's like, that's what we're all moving to. That's what we're all conforming to. And actually, the people who are already, who you look at as lower status, as, as having failed bodies already, either because they're women or because they uh, are, are slaves or they were slaves or, or whatever the reason was, you look at their bodies as failed. Well, their bodies are naturally closer to this body of Jesus, they actually have a more prestigious place. We're going to allow you to, to get to that place too. And, and again, I think it's, it's this sort of upside down, doesn't make sense, but it is the pattern that we see happening throughout the New Testament and in much of the early Christian literature up until a certain point, and then it flips back to sort of imitating the, <laughs> imitating the world and the rest is history. Mm, that's really helpful. I th- thank you for that. One of the things I said, you, you kind of, um, so, and we kind of talked about this very briefly at the start that, you know, so much of the Pauline discussion around gender centers on, on, on Paul's discussion about women. Um, and it's very much like, you know, okay, so is, is the, can women lead or what's the model of marriage or, or all this kind of stuff. Um, and that even, even the, then attempts to kind of, you know, wrestle with that and, and come to a more egalitarian perspective, um, still maybe have this kind of implicit of leaving masculinity alone and thus like allowing it to be a kind of a, a norm, right? An unchanging norm. And, and obviously what your book is doing is saying, well, no, no, masculinity also needs to be interrogated. And, and once you realize that it is a performative thing as much as well, you know, you can do that investigating and, and critiquing. And, and what it got me thinking was um, we mentioned Daniel Kirk earlier, and I remember him talking about how kind of the moves that you have to, that you make, around like say like women leadership and and, and egalitarian uh, relationships and that are already you know pulling out the cards on this whole 
patriarchy thing that you you kind of can't stop at just the women thing. You then have to have this, if you've made that move, you've already kind of gone, we're actually rejecting this whole reading, this whole system, and it then opens up to the conversations around broader gender and sexual diversity um, and, 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 and all of this. So I was just curious a bit about that by not just kind of going, okay, do we, it's, you know, do we let the women in? It's, it's more like, do we think, rethink this whole piece and that that necessarily um, can't stop just as the first door being opened? Yeah, absolutely. And that was, that was a, that was a really important part in sort of my own progression through uh, higher education. So I, I started at a pretty conservative Bible college and then I went to one seminary and that place kind of fell apart. So I went to another seminary and finished there. And then I, I went to another seminary that kind of fell apart too for, for my dissertation as well. But sort of my journey through that was realizing as you start to use context to understand what's going on. And like you said, you start to see some of the cards being pulled out or you start to change some of the pieces you realize that you really can't stop or that if you do stop, it's because you're making that choice. Like you are inserting yourself mm. in that immutable process and you're saying, I'm okay with this, mm-hmm. but I am not okay following this stuff through. And, and I think it's actually been pretty disappointing the number of teachers that I've run across and scholars who they're aware of all of this stuff, right? It's not that like people who, who hold more conservative positions on these things. It's not that they're not aware of this. It's that they know where these conversations go and they're just not okay going there. Because once you start saying, okay, well, let's contextualize Paul's understanding of men and women and, the, and, and even of bodies that don't fit into those, those categories. Let's, let's contextualize his approach to gender. And then you realize that sexual activity is right there too. And that the, the way that we, the way that the, those passages about, um, about um, LGBTQ bodies are read today actually don't make sense once you begin to contextualize them. And that once you begin to contextualize them, you realize Paul seems to be saying all sorts of other things that people hadn't thought of because they'd never thought of contextualizing them. But that idea that, you know, once you start to contextualize the New Testament, you really can't stop. And the places where it goes are oftentimes surprising, both both in the way that they undermine sort of contemporary conservative positions, but also in the way that they consistently point towards uh, the way that they consistently point towards a community where equality is the goal, mm. where the manipulation of power and the control of others for your own benefit is resisted on all fronts. And I, I think that, seeing that happen sort of at each stage in the contextualization process is both encouraging and extremely depressing at the same time, because you're like, the answers are here, or at least a model for how these things could be thought about and and that they had been carried out. It's here, it's in this thing, it's in this book, it's in these texts, but they have been so thoroughly misread or read through um, other stories to serve other ends that it's hard to get people to even imagine that Paul might not have been a misogynistic jerk, and that he may have he may have encouraged women to take positions of power. Um, 
right before the book was published, I was at uh, I was at SBLAAR and I ran into um, Antoinette Clark Wire, who was famous for her work on the Corinthian women prophets. And sort of her approach was looking at what Paul says about women and prophecy and head coverings and saying that, well, what must have happened to generate that discussion was that women were prophesying, that women were demonstrating this power in the community. But when she was doing her scholarship, there was no way to think about Paul in any way other than sort of a patriarchal jerk who was trying to tamp down the these women who were taking leadership positions. And so much of her work was about sort of deconstructing Paul and and saying, well, the early early Christian movement was empowering these women, and Paul was coming in to, to tramp them down. And I, ha- I ran into her at this conference, and I was saying, hey, this is my work. This is what I'm doing. What do you think? And it was great to sort of have that encounter as someone who had sort of seen what was happening in the community, but, but there just wasn't the academic language. There weren't the models yet to rethink Paul enough to see him as an ally in this conversation. But that's sort of the benefit of, of progress is right now we can look and say, okay, well, what if Paul is not sort of this standard top-down patriarchal man? What if he is trying to empower these women and seeing actually makes a lot of sense? Yeah. Oh, thank you for that. I think that's really great. One, like, um, as we kind of starting to land the plane, I was, you know, there is a risk to being a subordinate man, right? There, there's, you know, to, to misperform gender in, in, in any way, um, you know, often can result in violence and and persecution and and, and the like and has right and does um so i'm thinking about that that paul is encouraging this this you know failing this subordination and this subversion um and at the same time paul has lots of very encouraging passages about suffering mm-hmm. uh suffering for christ and suffering you know because of your imitation of christ and and that there is something redemptive and 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 that you are held in those Kind of moments, and I was just wondering if you had any thoughts on that. Given you know that this, if this encouragement is taken through, um, even in you know enlightened and civilized twenty first century, uh, wherever we are, you know, it still holds a risk, and I'm sure it held risks uh, in Paul's day. How that potentially links with some of his um, other teaching around, um, you know, what happens when we suffer and, and, and the like. No, and I, I mean, I think that's I think that's a great connection to make, and I, I don't think it's an accident that those ideas sort of exist side by side for Paul, um, especially like if you look at what he's talking about at the end of Romans, right? He's he's sort of warning them that their behavior is going to bring them into conflict with the with the powers that be, and that they need to be careful in how they respond, mm. because he knows that if the community follows through on these types of ideas that it's going to upset the status quo. It's going to upset those people who benefit from the system as it is currently being lived out. And that he's preparing his community with a different set of goals and a different set of ambitions and a different model for what what they should try to look like so that when those sufferings happen, they're not left out in the cold, that they do have resources to look at, that they they do have models to follow, that they do have sort of these images to come back to and say, this has cost me, like this behavior does actually cost me because for those people that have the ability, they no longer are accessing some of those avenues of power. And that's going to mean all kinds of things for their life, loss of job, loss of income, different legal status. But they have to understand that as they do that, 
they are entering into, and that's that's gaining them status in a different type of community into the kingdom of God, right? And and sort of that imagery where those two those two things, those two communities overlap, the, the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God, or as Paul says, those of us upon whom the, the, the turning of the ages have met, those people who sort of stand with one foot in the old age and one foot in the new age, and he's desperately trying to get them to live as if the new age was fully here, even though they're still feeling a lot of the consequences that happen from the old age or from the way that things currently are. And so I think a lot of that that language in Paul about it being encouraged by suffering, about living into a different way of life, about conforming to the, the sufferings of Christ's body, kingdom of God language more, more broadly, are all about him sort of giving them a new imagination and giving them a vision for the world as, as Torah sort of envisions it. And he's now saying, and it's possible for you to start participating in that, even though it's going to suck a little bit when you have to like, when you pull, when you're pulling yourself out of that system, I, when I'm talking about this in class and this, this might date me a little bit, but I talk about the, um, the scene in the movie, the matrix, when the sort of the main character who is enmeshed, when Neo, who is part of this computer program first wakes up and he's all attached with these things. And he has a feeding tube and this, this, this cord that's attached to his brain. And he has to pull that stuff off and he has to pull this thing out and he's weak and he's suffering and it hurts. And then one of the machines comes down and, and sort of looks at his body and it assesses him as broken and no longer valuable in the system. And it shoots him out the bottom. And I was like, that's pretty much exactly what Paul hopes all of us will do. Because if you look around at many of our societies and I'll own this as, as an American citizen right now in 2020, I am deeply embarrassed by how power is being used in my own context. I think the healthiest thing for us is to get out, right? Is, is to leave this system and to try our best to find healthier ways of being human, even as it costs us as we leave, as we leave the system. Mm. Oh, thank you for that. And I think like, you know, the encouragement for Christians is, you know, if we've already um, agreed that the world was changed in Christ and, and that completely upturns all views of the world, you know, we should at least be somewhat more positioned to leave other systems of, of um, inequality and, and misuse of power and that. Like it, it should be yeah. in our DNA a bit. Uh, so my last like little just fun question is, so if I, if I was going to like, you know, this is great, I'm going to do a series in my church on 1 Corinthians, uh, you know, and try to work some of these ideas out and help folks. Um, how much is Paul going to approve of, a, you know, a, a sermon series title of um, being beta in Christ? Is that gonna is that gonna play for him? Is that capturing some of what he's talking about, or are we are we getting too far away from the the main oh, place here? I you know it's like I tell my students that if if Paul walked in and saw you on your computers or with your cell phones, that he would probably assume that you were like witches. Not <laughs> with any of you. So I I'm not sure if I can. I don't want to speak for Paul. Let me not speak for Paul. Um, I I do I do think that whether it be a sermon series or whether it just be talking about the idea that there are other ways to understand the model for Paul and the model for what it means to be man or woman or non-binary or other, that, that we don't just have to go back to the models that we've been given, right? That there are other ways to think about 
our body, that there are other ways to think about other bodies, that there are there are healthier ways, there are there are ways that allow us to not feel afraid or to not feel not feel betrayed, but but there are ways that allow us to think about these differences as actually benefits. And that we can look back into the New Testament, into the Hebrew Bible, in, in, other, in other ancient texts, and we can see people doing this. And, and we can see sometimes they come to healthier understandings, sometimes less healthy. But that we can look at we can look at 1 Corinthians and we can say whether or not it succeeded, and it's debatable whether or not it succeeded. But we see someone who is who is desperately trying to give us a new imagination for what it means to be human and for what it means to think about our obligation to to other people. And that we shouldn't be afraid of participating in that. So, you know, you mentioned beta beta masculinity or or, or beta person. Um, and you'd mentioned Cuck earlier in one of my conversations with Daniel Kirk. And I think this had actually been something that he had written in a blog post somewhere, but he was talking about cuck Christology, right? This idea that to really understand what it means to conform to the image of, of Jesus, it, it means to understand that, that doing so requires that we let go of power in this sort of upside down, uncomfortable, scandalous way. Mm. And it, it's, it's also interesting because you look at how crucifixion was, was understood and, and the type of uh, the type of um, sort of slander that was used against followers of Jesus using the, cruci- the 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 image of a crucified body that oftentimes played on this idea of it's ridiculous that you would follow a crucified leader because that's someone who, by definition, has failed to achieve status and power. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly Paul's point, right? That's exactly the gospel's point. And it's ironic how how perfectly um, we managed to not hear that. Indeed, indeed. Well, let let the reader hear now, and uh, and hopefully we, something new may come. The book is "Being Subordinate Men: Paul's Rhetoric of Gender and Power in One Corinthians," out with Lexington Books Fortress Academic. Get it now if you can, or um, email your librarian, uh, and and let's get the book out there and into more hands. Uh, Brian Robinson, thank you for joining us today on Love, Rinse, Repeat. It's been great. Is there anything else you want to shout out or other ways people can connect with you? Uh, anything you're teaching or anything like that? Well, uh, I just wanted to say I'm about to launch a project uh, that is that is aimed at helping people rethink their own Christian identity and to rethink what it means to be, to be Christian, sort of through the lens of religious studies, some critical investigations of American evangelicalism, and some of these deep dives into uh, early Christianity. Um, it's not out yet, but if you if you want to know more about that, you can find me on Instagram at Brian Robinson PhD, um, and more details about that will be coming soon. Oh, that's excellent. We'll get you back on when it when it comes out as well. We can get talk about that. That sounds excellent. Um, yeah, thanks for joining us today.